You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. There we go. Well, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Mountain View. And uh, if this is your very first time with us, uh, welcome. We are incredibly glad that you're here today and that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, If you would, um, please fill out a connection card, uh, as Mike and Annette uh, mentioned in the announcements. And you can hold on to it until the end of the service and give it to someone in the Connection Center And uh, they'll give you a gift bag in exchange for that. And that's just our small way of saying thank you for being here today. Well, when you came, when you, uh, when you became a Christian, did anybody give it to you straight? Did anybody take you by the hand and take the time to tell you that the life of faith is not easy? The life of faith rarely follows a straight, predictable path. It tends to look more like the arrow on the right than the arrow on the left. Now, I've got a picture uh, that I want to put up because I'm a visual learner, okay? A lot of times people think that the journey of faith looks like a straight line, But for any of you who have walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know different. There are mountains and there are valleys. There are switchbacks and straightaways. There are hard climbs. And thank the Lord, there are sweet spots of rest and renewal along the way. There are lonely times and there are times of rich fellowship. There are times when the sun is shining bright. And there are times when it seems like the fog will never lift, times when victory seems to come easy, and times when victory feels like it'll never come. There are times when, frankly, God is carrying us and holding fast to us more than we are holding fast to him. This is the nature of the journey of faith from here to there. This is the life of Faith from this moment until you and I arrive home in the new heavens and the new earth. This is, this is what faith in God's character and faith in God's promises looks like until that moment when hope is made sight. Thankfully, the book of Exodus presents us with just this picture. A realistically hopeful map that's intended to form us as God's people for a real-world relationship of real faith in the real God. So I want to invite you this morning to turn to Exodus chapter 5. And over the course of Exodus chapter 5, and then into the very first part of Exodus chapter 6, we are going to map the journey of faith and talk together this morning honestly about some of the things that you and I will uh, undoubtedly and inevitably face along the way. Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to 
read a portion at a time as we walk through uh, the chapter and talk about and stop along the way and talk for a bit. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Father, we just ask as we work our way through this passage this morning that you would speak to us. Lord, first and foremost, simply through the reading of your word. Father, this is your voice. May we hear it and hear it well. And Father, as we work our way through it and as we open it up and seek to apply it, may your Holy Spirit take what's here and work it into each individual heart and life. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, what did you expect when you became a Christian? Did you expect spiritual opposition? Because you're going to face it. Right here, right out of the gate, in response to Moses and Aaron's very first attempt to convey Yahweh's message to Pharaoh, Pharaoh simply says, Who's Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. I'm not going to listen to Yahweh. I'm not going to let Yahweh's people go. Now this question, who is Yahweh? Or in most of our Bibles, it reads, who is the Lord? This question echoes throughout the remainder of the entire book of Exodus, particularly through chapter 15, as Yahweh takes center stage in the book in order to release his people from captivity. In fact, Interesting fact, seven times before the very first plague on Egypt, Yahweh verbally answers Pharaoh's defiant question with the words, I am Yahweh. The ten plagues of Egypt then become God showing Pharaoh who he is. In a sense, what God is going to do in answer to Pharaoh's question is take the gloves off and say, you want to know who I am? Let me show you. Now before we get there, the important thing to see at this point is the defiant opposition of Pharaoh. And look, it's no secret. We've already talked about this. Pharaoh is essentially the great ancient dragon's avatar. Okay? He is the dragon's representative. He is opposed to all the purposes of God, all the promises of God, and ultimately, because of that, opposed to the people of God. And this ancient dragon, this ancient foe of the Lord God, is not going to go down without a fight. From his first confrontation with Pharaoh to their final confrontation at the Red Sea, 
Pharaoh is going to oppose Yahweh's purposes for his people, and he's going to oppose Yahweh's promises. Now, let's be clear this morning. The ancient serpent's opposition to God's purposes for for his people is as formidable today as it was in ancient Egypt. He is as determined in our day and time as he was then to do everything in his power to oppose God's purposes for you and I and to oppose God's promises to you and I. Look, as certainly as there is a kingdom of God, there is also a kingdom of darkness. Now, these aren't equal and opposite forces of good and evil. Yahweh is sovereign. Yahweh is God, and the powers of darkness are not. Now, this doesn't mean that they aren't real, and it doesn't mean that they are a matter to be taken lightly. Moses and Aaron should have gone into Pharaoh's presence expecting the very response that they received from the Egyptian king. After all, Yahweh told them Pharaoh would not let his people go without a fight. You and I, in the same way that God's people were then, are under spiritual attack. Now, it comes in various forms, but with one primary goal all the time, to wither, weaken, and extinguish our faith. The flaming darts of the evil one They are always designed and employed with really studied and strategic precision, like like laser-guided missiles. And they're designed to pummel our trust in our Father. They're designed to weaken our faith in the Son who bought us. They're designed to convince us that God is against us and not for us, that he doesn't love us, that he isn't sovereign, that he isn't good or wise or compassionate or holy. Now, why our faith? Well, because it is through faith. It is through trust in our Father and his promises that the Holy Spirit works to make us more like Jesus, our King. Just a few verses down in chapter 5, you and I are going to see that Pharaoh tells the Hebrews to stop believing the lies that Moses and Aaron are selling, which is exactly what the enemy does today. The enemy would convince us that the words of God are nothing more than lies, that the promises of God are not true, that they will never come to pass. And that you and I will never see the day when we are free from Satan's influence. Now, thankfully, the book of Exodus does not stop with chapter 5. The Lord God will win the victory against Pharaoh and on behalf of his people later in the book of Exodus. All you got to do, if you want to read ahead, is go to chapters 14 and 15. Ultimately, there in verse 15, in chapter 15, the people of God will sing about God's victory over the forces of darkness. 
Now, the whole victory that's on display throughout the book of Exodus really foreshadows a greater victory to come. You see, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, the Lord Jesus ultimately gains victory over all of the forces of darkness, a victory that will never, ever, ever be reversed. And you and I, the people of God, just like the ancient Israelites would ultimately share in the victory of God over Pharaoh and his forces, you and I share in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over the forces of darkness. If we are united to him by faith, then the victory that he won is also our victory. Now, This doesn't mean that you and I have the opportunity now to skate through life picking rosies and daisies as if everything now is smooth sailing. When you and I are united to the Lord Jesus by faith, whether you and I know it or not, we are then commissioned into this ongoing cosmic spiritual conflict that we cannot see with our physical eyes. But it is as real and it is as ongoing as any physical conflict that you and I might observe in the natural world. And when you and I come to faith in Christ, we enter into that battle and we are called to wrestle against spiritual opposition in the strength of the Lord. Now, when you became a Christian, did anybody tell you that? Did anybody tell you That in the midst of God's wonderful plan for your life, you were going to encounter a deceitful enemy of your soul who was going to try to destroy you. Probably not. We don't talk about those things. Right? Like, we like to to sell the sunshine, but unlike Jesus, we don't tell people, you should count the cost. Right? Like, the life of faith's hard. You're going to face spiritual opposition. Once you you become a believer of the Lord Jesus, you're going to have a target on your back, and and you're going to be on the opposing side. You're going to walk every single day through enemy-occupied territory. And there are going to be landmines everywhere. Now, we don't do that alone. And we don't do that from a place of, is victory possible? Is victory not possible? No, we do that from a position of victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is is why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Notice Paul's first exhortation. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in Christ, who is the one who has victory over the forces of darkness. Stand strong in the might of his strength. This is what enables you and I to face the spiritual opposition that we face. But here's the deal. Before you and I can make war, 
We have to know that there is one. We have to be honest enough to admit that there's spiritual opposition, that the battle has indeed come to us. Brothers and sisters, let us not be caught off guard. Let us not be caught unawares. Let us not, like Moses and Aaron, come into this thing called the Christian life not expecting opposition. Because it will come. It does come. And in many ways, it is relentless. In this thing called the Christian life, not only will you and I face spiritual opposition, but the truth of the matter is, according to Exodus 5, things may, may well get worse for you before they get better. Now look at what the text says, beginning in verse 5. In response to Moses and Aaron's request on behalf of Yahweh, this is what happens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they, are, that they made in the past, you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. They are lazy. Therefore they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid upon the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was no straw, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had sat over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But Pharaoh said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the world, to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Then met, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, if you'll remember, back at the very end of chapter 4, when Moses and Aaron visited with the elders of the people of Israel, and Moses and Aaron performed the three miraculous signs in the presence of the people, how did the people respond? The text says that they bowed their heads in worship. Why? 
because they at last heard from Yahweh that he was there to rescue them. How do they respond here? After their heavy burdens have been increased. The text says that walking out, they encounter Moses and Aaron, and they say, the Lord is going to deal with you because you're nothing but liars. You've not made things better. You've made things worse. Pharaoh's opposition results in greater difficulty for the children of Israel. Now, did God not promise already that he was going to liberate them from slavery? Yes. What gives? God sent, Moses went, hopes were high. Here's what you and I need to understand. Obedience to God does not always yield immediate results or reward. Nor does it lead to the kind of payoff that we think it should. Did anybody ever tell you this when you became a Christian? I wonder. Did anybody ever prepare you for the fact that Sometimes obedience to the Lord will make things worse in your life and not necessarily better. I wonder if some of our doubt and some of our discouragement in the Christian life doesn't come from unmet expectations. After all, disappointment is typically the result of dashed hopes. So the people had been told by Moses and Aaron that they, were on, that they were here on behalf of Yahweh to see that God's people were set free. At that moment, hopes were running high, but their hopes were quickly dashed because things did not work out immediately as they hoped they would. I wonder sometimes if our own doubt and discouragement doesn't follow the same pattern. I wonder why that happens. Sometimes I think we have more of a transactional relationship with God than we do an actual relationship with God. What do I mean by that? I think sometimes we tend to think that our relationship with God works something like our relationship with a vending machine does. So coin in, cookie out. Obedience in, Blessing out. Doesn't work like that. Not always. And I'm thankful that chapter 5 is here to remind us of that. You know, we entered into relationship with God, perhaps at least some of us did, thinking that faith in God or obedience to God would, would automatically mean that our lives would improve. That relationships would automatically get better. That our bank accounts would end up just a little bit fuller. That past hurts would instantly be healed. That growth in Christ would require nothing of us. Now Jesus told his first followers to expect something very, very different from this. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me 
you may have peace. In the world, you will have what? Tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it for his disciples. Jesus doesn't tell them that everything is going to be okay now that they're his followers. No, what Jesus tells them is, number one, I've already been victorious over the world, and I'm going to be with you as you walk through trouble in the world. Now, why? Why would Yahweh allow the events of chapter 5 to unfold like they are? Why the delay? Well, the delay does two things. The delay, first of all, reveals the hearts of God's people. The question that Pharaoh asks at the beginning of chapter 5, who is Yahweh, is not even a question that the people of God can answer accurately. Not even Moses and Aaron get it right. Did you notice what they said to Pharaoh in response to Pharaoh's, nope, I'm not letting Yahweh's people go? Look back to verse 3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. What? What does it say? Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Had God ever issued a warning like that? to Moses. No! Moses did not know Yahweh. At this point, Moses considered Yahweh an ogre, in a sense. Fast forward toward the end of the chapter, where God, has, God hasn't stepped in yet to rescue his people. And how do the people respond? The people respond by saying, the Lord judge you, Moses, because now you've made things harder for us than better. You've put us in a position to die at the hands of Pharaoh and his servants. You see, in the end, like, like Moses and the people of Israel are just like Pharaoh. They don't know Yahweh. You realize faith isn't proven until it's tested, right? Have you ever thought about that? It was one thing for the people of God to, to receive Moses and all of the miraculous signs that Moses brought with him. It was another thing entirely for the people of God to continue to trust God's character and God's promises when the heat was turned up. You see that? When that happened, they folded like a freshly dried bed sheet. The same thing often happens to us, doesn't it? When the heat is turned up, what's really inside of us is revealed. When this happens, God intends to use it as an opportunity to reveal his strength 
in the midst of our weakness. By the way, signs and wonders do very little to contribute to faith. Very little. At the end of chapter 4, the people of Israel had seen three of them. By the end of chapter 5, they want nothing to do with Yahweh or his servant Moses. The same thing happens in response to the events of the Red Sea. They see God miraculously save them, and within a few weeks' time, they want to go back to Egypt because they fear that God's brought them out into the wilderness to kill them. So don't think that if God showed up and miraculously showed out that you and I would have increased faith as a result. It doesn't work like that. Jesus, in fact, in the Gospel of John, knew that it doesn't work like that. Faith isn't proven until it's tested. Chapter 5 is about the testing of the faith of God's people. The revelation of what was really in their hearts. Secondly, the delay is ultimately going to give Yahweh the opportunity to reveal his saving power to his people so that they will come to know him. Look at what verse 1 of chapter 6 says. That the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Look, the truth of the matter is, is simply this, okay? You and I learn more about God's faithfulness and discover more of God's mercy in the delays than we do in the quick deliverances. We do. Just how it works. We learn more of God's faithfulness in the delays than we do the quick deliverances. That's very often why God makes us wait. The delays, the wildernesses, they provide the necessary space for faith to be tested. But not only that, they provide the necessary space where in the midst of our weakness, God's strength shines through. They provide the necessary strength where when our faith flickers, God's what? Faithfulness becomes what we depend on. In the end, the deliverance becomes that much more glorious because of the delay. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul confirms this very thing when he writes these words. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As you and I look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There is a good reason, oftentimes, that when we ask for God to deliver us in the here and now, he does not. Because God wants to be our strength. God wants to be our faithfulness. God wants to be the one who sees us through so that at the end of the road, when it's all said and done and we look back on it, we are blown away. We are blown away because God was the one who sustained us even when we couldn't see him. 
God was the one who brought us through even when we, ha- even when we struggled to believe. These light and momentary afflictions, Paul says, are building up for us a weight of glory. What did he mean? He means at the end of the day, when you and I are in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth, and the tapestry that he's putting together is turned around, and we see everything, we go, wow! God, I never could have imagined that you were doing this in that moment when I thought that you were nowhere to be found. That's what God's doing. You see, the seeming setbacks that you and I experience in this life, they are an eternal setup for the glory of God. They're an eternal setup for the final deliverance of God, a deliverance that at the end of the day will bring him more glory and compel us to greater worship as a direct result of the delays. Now, if you didn't expect spiritual opposition when you became a Christian, I hope today that that changes for you. If you didn't expect things to get harder before they get better when you became a Christian, I hope that you see things differently today. Thirdly, I want you to know that along the way, at some point or another, you and I are probably going to have questions. Questions for God. Now, all this has happened in chapter 5 to the people of God, and and Moses is devastated. If you and I were in his position, we would be too. Look at what he says in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why? Did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have done what? Nothing. Now, we ought to be used to Moses asking questions by now. right? Like if if you were here and walked through chapters 3 and 4 with us, It should come as no surprise to you that Moses has questions. Here, in a sense, for Moses, the gloves come off. God, or rather Moses, questions God's motives and God's wisdom. He's disappointed with God. Here, Moses questions God's plan for his life. He is deeply discouraged by the results of his first meeting with Pharaoh. He even questions God's promises. You said that you were going to send me here to see to it that this people was set free. Now things are harder for them than ever. What gives? Moses is distraught over the increased suffering of his people. What are some of your why questions? Have you ever talked to God about them? Did you know that you could talk to God about them? When you became a Christian, did anyone ever prepare you 
for the questions that would come when God did not answer your prayers in the way that you thought he should. Did anybody ever prepare you for the questions that would come when his quote-unquote wonderful plan for your life included much more difficulty than you ever expected or imagined? Did anyone ever tell you that the life of faith would be just that, a life of faith? Y'all, I am so thankful for Exodus 5. I am thankful for Moses' questions. Moses is a frail human being, just like you and just like me. Can you imagine? Over the course of two chapters, how God had met with Moses in the miraculous burning bush. And God had specifically told Moses out loud that he was going to send him back to Egypt to lead his people out of captivity. Can you imagine then that that God had given him these three miraculous signs and Moses had seen them with his own eyes and now here at the end of chapter 5, Moses is looking at God and saying, you have done nothing. Again, the audible voice of God miraculous appearance from God, signs and wonders for God, they did nothing for Moses. Nothing. Why do we ask why questions, by the way? Well, we ask why questions because deep down, you and I are naturally interpreters and meaning makers as as human beings. Deep down, we know that things are supposed to make sense. It's part of the image of God within us. We know that this is not a random universe. We know that you and I are not simply the victims of material and natural forces. We ask why because we are human. And as human beings, we want to understand how the pieces of the puzzle fit together. So it is a natural thing. We also ask why questions because, frankly, we don't have the eternal vantage point that God has. We can't see how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And for this reason, the why question will never go away. At least not in this life. Now, we also ask why questions because we want answers. Because we think that what we need most are answers. We ask why questions because we believe that if we had the answers, that the answers would provide us with some sort of soul satisfaction. Now, Does our Father understand all of these things about us? Yes, he does. In fact, his answer to Moses is an incredibly beautiful showcase of his grace. Is our Father annoyed by these questions when they pour forth from the heart of a discouraged child? 
No. Now, now, do you know that? Do you really believe that? Really? The scriptures are full of hurting people who ask questions. And they model for us what it means to ask questions. Now, here's the kicker. Is our Father obligated to answer our why questions? No. No here. Nowhere in the Bible does God promise us that he will answer all of our questions this side of heaven. Now this, brothers and sisters, is where we need to be careful. Our Father invites our questions and receives us graciously when we ask him. But hear me, it is easy to go from simply expressing hurt to expecting answers. When that happens, you and I move from childlike faith to entitlement. And when we move from childlike faith to entitlement, we tend to become bitter to God because God isn't supplying us with the answers that we think we need. So the questions are okay because God wants us to express ourselves in his presence. But when we come to the point in our questions that we are demanding answers from God, then we've entered the territory of entitlement and we're seeking something from God rather than God himself and rather than being children who are okay without the answers if we have him. Can I suggest that you and I start asking a better question? Perhaps a different question. How about the question, how? Instead of the question, why? Instead of asking why something happened, what if I began to ask, how might my father's glory be displayed through this situation? Instead of asking why something happened, what if we began asking our father, how might I be obedient to Jesus right here and right now? Knowing that God's character and worth can be displayed even in the brokenness of our lives gives us hope despite our circumstances. So alongside the why question, perhaps start asking the how question. Finally, I want you to see in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 6 that at the end of the day, it's going to be our Father who sees us safely home. Look at how God responds to Moses. Beginning in verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, in response to Moses' questions, What does God do? God graciously reiterates his name and his promises. Four times in verses 1 through 9, Yahweh says, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh and I appeared to the patriarchs. I am Yahweh and I'm going to keep my promises to the patriarchs. I am Yahweh and I'm going to rescue and redeem my people taking them out of slavery and bringing them into this good and blessed place. Four times, he reminds Moses of his name. He reminds Moses that he has been faithful in the past and that he will be true to his word in the future. Now, if you and I are going to navigate spiritual opposition, if you and I, are going to navigate the certain challenges of the life of faith, if you and I are going to navigate the inevitable questions that come, you and I are going to have to remember God's past faithfulness, and we're going to have to hold on to God's future promises. In the present, the fog can seem too thick sometimes. So you and I kind of have to push through the fog and go backward to God's past faithfulness and go forward to God's future promises in order to remain steadfast in the present. Now this isn't always easy. According to verse 9, these words were not easy for the Hebrew people to hear. Don't, Don't miss what the text says. Moses reiterated these things to them and they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Have you ever been low? Like real low? Have you ever been low enough to where the word of God just didn't impact you? It didn't matter what you read. It didn't matter how many times you rehearsed the promises in your own mind. They didn't stick because they just didn't feel like they were for you. Now that's getting real. Have you ever been there? I have. It's not easy to be in that place. But again, I'm thankful for Exodus 5 and I'm thankful for the honesty that's here. Why were the children of Israel there? They were were there because things had gone from bad to worse. They were there because they could not see a way out. They were there because there wasn't a light at the end of the tunnel. They were there because they had received all these promises 
from God, and the promises at this point seem to have come to nothing. Now, thankfully, and here's the point, thankfully, Yahweh was committed to their deliverance. Thankfully, though their faith may have grown very small, Yahweh's faithfulness swallowed up their faithlessness. It may have seemed like a candle with little wax left to burn their faith, but Yahweh was not going to let that stop him from setting them free and seeing them safely home. Along the journey of faith, question how things could possibly get better. By the time it's all said and done, you and I would probably actually have more questions than we do answers. In fact, I sat across from a missionary with whom I had the wonderful opportunity to eat lunch probably five, six years ago now. And his wife um, had succumbed to uh, a long battle uh, with brain cancer. And uh, he had been on the mission field for like 30 years. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Mike, I used to think that maturity in the Christian faith meant that I would have more answers than questions. He said, now I think maturity in the Christian faith means that you're able to live with the questions. That's one of the, that is one of the best things I've ever heard in my whole life. And I don't think I'll ever forget it. You know, by the time that it's all said and done, by the time that you and I are home with our Father and with our Savior through the Holy Spirit, it's going to be really, really clear that it is our Father who has brought us home all the way. It's going to be really, really clear that it's our Father who has sustained our faith. It's going to be really, really clear that it's our Father who has tenderly and patiently walked with us through the darkness. And it's going to be really, really clear that it's our Father who has single-handedly fulfilled all of his promises to us. One of the ways that our Father meets us on this journey is through the bread and the cup at the table of the Lord. So right here and right now, our Father prepares a table for us as the psalmist says in the presence of our enemies. And he invites us to come and to eat with him. Though we are surrounded by spiritual foes, God says there is refreshment here. Right here and right now, our Father meets us in the wilderness of our sin and our struggles and our suffering with soul-nourishing refreshment at the table of the Lord. Right here and right now, 
He answers our why questions with tangible and tasteable tokens of his presence with us and his commitment to us. Sometimes, sometimes when the words on the page don't pop, but you come to the table and you eat and you drink and you're reminded through these tangible things that God loves you, that God is for you, that even if you're walking through the wilderness, God is with you and he will nourish you and he will strengthen you. This meal's a gift, friends, a gift in the midst of the wilderness, right here and right now. Our Father says, come and eat freely. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come and eat freely. All you of little faith, and be reminded of the faithfulness of Christ. Now this morning, we're going to share in the Lord's table a little differently. We're not going to eat from the little prepackaged what I call cardboard wafers, or drink from the little prepackaged juice cups. We're going to get up and we're going to come forward and someone's going to serve you a piece of freshly made bread by someone in our church and someone's going to serve you a cup of juice. And when they serve you, they're going to look at you and say, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Both as reminders that our Father is for us and not against us. Now I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to come. I'm going to go ahead and ask the two couples who are going to be serving uh, communion during the service to come. Uh, Alan and Francis, y'all are serving. And then Keith and Marianne, if y'all will come to the front and get ready this morning. I want us to prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup together today. The scriptures tell us that on the night when he was betrayed by one of his very own disciples, Jesus shared a final Passover meal with his disciples. And among them, during that meal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he passed it among his disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after dinner and he passed that among his disciples. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. The bread and the cup remind us of Christ's broken body and his shed blood. The promise of God's forgiveness of our sin if we belong to Christ. And the promise that we will one day be made whole by the Lord Jesus. So this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have a real relationship with him, I invite you to come and to receive. If you don't know Jesus, then do not take this meal. Rather, take Christ and let him become your all in all. I'm going to pray for us, and here's what I want you to do, all right, so that this hopefully will run smoothly. I want everybody to come up the center aisle and go back to your seat via the two outside aisles. So if you're on the two inside sections, just come to the center, come up front, and go back around to your seat. If you're in the two outside sections, then either come over to the center or go to the back of the room and come up 
and go back to your seat. Does that make sense? Perfect. All right. Well, let me pray for us, and the worship team's going to come, and they're going to begin to play while you all come forward to receive the meal of